breakfast Christ dangles on the Weetabix crucifix. Take a bite from his thigh, you clammy Anthony's. Welcome to the Blind by Podcast. If you're a brand new listener, go back and listen to some earlier podcasts to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. And if you're a regular listener, if you're a weeping Sheila, you know the crack. Welcome back. Thank you for the lovely feedback for last week's podcast. It was a mental health podcast. We spoke about the psychology of core beliefs via the metaphor of the Wizard of Oz. And whenever I do a mental health episode that uses like a device from popular culture, like the Wizard of Oz, or I did ones on Aesop's Fables, anytime I do that I get quite a positive response. So I'm going to try and continue threading that theme into any mental health episodes. I think using storytelling, in particular stories that we're already familiar with, using those type of things as a device to speak about mental health, to have mental health conversations is quite effective. Because I don't think we have a cultural literacy when it comes to speaking about our internal world. Like if you... Mental health is mentioned quite a bit on the media the past few years, which is a good thing. But often it's spoken about in via platitudes that are quite behaviour-based. Be kind, open up, talk to someone. And that's very useful and it's certainly better than it not being spoken about at all. But I can't remember the last time I turned on the television or the radio and I heard someone speaking in depth about the emotion of anger or what it's like to experience jealousy or what it's like to experience having low self-esteem and believing that other people are better than you or the experience of contempt where you believe yourself to be better than others or the words that we use and the beliefs that we have internally when we experience anxiety internal dialogue the things we say to ourselves in our own heads in private because you'll know if you've ever experienced anxiety or depression that's kind of where it starts it's the things you say to yourself I'm incapable I'm useless I will never be able to overcome this thing that I'm scared of if only I was better at this better at that you're a piece of shit these are very painful internal conversations and when you're in the throes of crisis that's the inside of your head all day long all the time and for me my daily goal is through mindfulness through self-awareness through self-compassion is to replace that internal dialogue that negative rigid internal dialogue with something that's a bit more self-forgiving and flexible so that I then have the headspace to think about the things I want to think about my interests, my passions, the things that give me a a sense of meaning and happiness. So we tend not to discuss that internality, not in the media and not really in conversations with each other out loud because we attach a lot of shame to it. Speaking about our negative internal self-talk out loud is quite scary. You have to learn to be comfortable with vulnerability in order to do that. It feels like taking off a layer of clothes a little bit. For a lot of people, consciously thinking about or even mentioning private internal dialogue tends to really only happen if you're lucky enough to attend counselling or psychotherapy. And then the counsellor says to you, 
you know, what, what phrases or words are going around your head when you're feeling depressed? Let's speak about some of that. So I think using storytelling, metaphors, familiar stories like the Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man who thought he was stupid, using these things that we, we already understand to then have a conversation about internal dialogue, I think that's it's, it's proven to be really effective on this podcast and it's only something I've realised in the past year based on your feedback. Because when I do a mental health episode and it's about Aesop's fables or the story with the lion and the thorn in his paw, I'm speaking about fucking psychology. That's what I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about cognitive psychology specifically. But I just noticed that ye really seem to pick up on it and take something from it when it's told via a familiar story. So I'm going to continue doing that going forward if I can. So I think this week's podcast is going to be a little bit chaotic because I had something planned and then that got derailed a little bit. And the reason is, um, if you've been listening to this podcast for the past few weeks, you'll know that I'm, I currently am undergoing a, an assessment for autism because I have lots of autistic listeners to this podcast, not just autistic listeners, people who are neurodivergent, they might uh, be ADHD. So anyway, quite a few listeners over the years have flagged with me that certain aspects of how I speak about things or how I relate to the world reminds them of themselves and their autism. So I got my diagnosis at the weekend and I am in fact autistic, which is, it's quite a lot to take on board, to be honest. Um... Because, well, first off, the, the weird thing about it is, you know, you I receive a diagnosis, which is quite medicalized. And it, it's getting my head around it is odd because finding out that I'm autistic is a real challenge to my sense of identity, if you get what I'm saying. I started off this podcast speaking about internal dialogue, how we speak to ourselves. Well... How I form my sense of self and my sense of identity and who I am, which I've been dealing with my whole life, that is now challenged because now I've learned that I'm autistic. Now the odd thing with that is, the thing with diagnosis, there's this irrational part of my brain that feels like I'm after getting autism. Do you get me? When... In fact, what's happened is someone has just given me a new word to describe how I've been my entire life. So I have been autistic my whole life since I was born. I'm just finding it out now in my 30s, which is quite challenging. That's very challenging to receive new information like that because I kind of had my sense of self figured out or I felt I did. And I had the the history of my existence figured out. And now I'm looking back at my entire life and who I am now with kind of a new lens. So I would like to speak about it because I can't not speak about it. I think if I, try, if I just learned that I'm autistic and then tried to do a podcast about something different, I wouldn't be emotionally present in the theme of that podcast. I need to speak about this because that's... This is the only thing that's on my mind. Like I haven't squared it with myself yet. 
even saying out loud, I'm autistic. I can't congruently connect with that word from my head to my heart, do you get me? Because it's too new. I've just found out a few fucking days ago. And it's a it's now a challenge to my identity. I'm reappraising my whole sense of self. And it shouldn't. Because, as I mentioned, I haven't suddenly become autistic. I've been autistic my whole life. But my internal script of who I am, I now have to go back and edit it. So before I even begin, I'm only going to speak about my experience as an autistic person, having just learned that I'm autistic. I'm not going to speak about anyone else's fucking experience, because here's the other mad thing. I just found out I'm autistic, but to be honest, I don't know a hell of a lot about autism. And the one thing I can tell is that the space of autism is a bit of a minefield at the moment. It's because because we're learning so much about it recently, is my guess. I'll give you an example recently. I would Keith Duffy on the podcast a few weeks back. We had an amazing podcast, wonderful crack. And Keith is a lovely person. And Keith has been a large voice in autism awareness in Ireland going back 20 years. And a lot of autistic people and parents of autistic kids contacted me to thank Keith for the work he's done around autism awareness. But one thing Keith promoted was a treatment for autism known as ABA. I'd never heard of it, I hadn't a clue. But this treatment is very controversial in autistic circles and a huge amount of autistic people are not happy with ABA as a treatment. So that's one thing I want to say because I learned that recently. And I will have experts, autism experts on this podcast in the coming year when I get my head around it and I'll make sure that these people are rigorous, respected, qualified people and that whoever I have on this podcast to speak about autism, if I do, that they will be doing it from a position of best practice, professionalism and compassion. The same degree of safety that I put in place when I have someone come on here and speak about mental illness or mental health I'll be doing the same if I have someone on speaking about autism. So I'm an autistic person and I'm going to speak about me and my experience and that's it. And if I fuck up and I say something wrong, I promise you that would be from a a position of ignorance and not knowing rather than me uh, being willfully irresponsible. And if I do say something wrong, please give me a DM, shoot me a DM and explain to me what I said wrong and point me in, in the direction of where I can learn. And then I'll take accountability for it. But please don't do a big Twitter call out if I get something wrong. I don't have the fucking headspace for that. And big giant Twitter call outs. They often don't work because what happens is that you might be well intentioned and then it gets misinterpreted and willfully taken out of context. And because that's what Twitter is. Twitter, Twitter isn't a social justice platform like it's a terrible thing that Twitter has become the platform for social justice it's not even a social media platform Twitter is a video game where people compete to have the best complaint and it's designed specifically to elicit only the most angry fearful combative responses so that billionaires can get rich off the data of your reactionary emotions that's what Twitter is But 
I'm going to hopefully avoid saying anything incorrect or wrong this week because I'm going to speak only about my experience as someone who just found out they're autistic. One thing I have learned is the importance of using person first language. So I'm not going to say I have autism or I got autism. I'm going to say I'm autistic. So it's not a thing that I have. It's who I am. This podcast is going to be a little bit self-indulgent because I need to do it. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know whenever I speak about mental health, I also do it for me. When I speak about my the internality of my emotional world on this podcast and I speak about my mental health regime, it's also a form of self-therapy. It's a form of self-talk. It's almost a form of journaling. And when I speak about my experiences on this podcast, it helps me. And if I'm sufficiently emotionally congruent, which means that my feelings and my thoughts are one, then it kind of vicariously helps other people too. So that's why I do it. I'll probably have a hot take next week, but this week I just need to be emotionally authentic with myself and process shit. I'm going to speak about my autism in two parts. There was the first part of my life, mainly school, where I experienced great difficulty. And then the second part of my life, from my early 20s up until now, where I've done fucking fantastically. I've been mentally healthy. I've achieved a shit ton of goals. I am happy with who I am. I love and enjoy life. The mental health problems that arose for me, which I now have to reframe and understand that they may have been driven by autism, but the mental health difficulties and the sadness and the barriers that I experienced in the first part of my life, they weren't caused by me. They were caused by the structures and systems that I had to fit into. And then when I started to live my own life, and pursue the current career that I have. There are no barriers. If something in my environment isn't working for me, I flexibly change to make it work for me. And the consequence of that is that 95% of the time, I'm a happy person with a decent sense of self-esteem and good mental health and achieving what I would like to achieve in my life for a sense of personal meaning. And to be honest, that's kind of all I want I don't have a strong desire to be really successful. I don't have a strong desire to be famous. What I want is... Can I earn a living doing the thing that I love every day? Can I do that? And if I can do that, then I enjoy being alive. The experience of existing is pleasurable. So before I begin... So with my autism diagnosis, the area where... I've had the most difficulty is social interaction with other humans. Things like small talk in particular, maintaining eye contact, stuff like that, which is instinctual to people who are neurotypical, for me, has always been a bit difficult. Doesn't mean I can't do it. I do do it, and I do it really well. But doing that requires effort for me. So I tend to not do a lot of it. I tend to not put myself into a lot of situations where I'm having small talk or interacting with large groups of people. I've always been that way. And up until now, I just used the word introvert to describe it. I have an introverted personality. I enjoy my own company and being with other people, it's not intolerable, it's just not my comfort zone. But having spoken to a psychologist and been assessed, it's actually autism. 
The problem with this is that it increases the likelihood of social rejection, bullying, fitting in comfortably in something like the school system, which is designed for neurotypical people. So over time, this resulted in social anxiety, a fear of society itself. Another issue for me is what's called executive functioning. I would have had difficulty paying attention in school. I would have had difficulty planning. I would have had difficulty doing things like homework, having the initiative to do homework by myself. I haven't been formally assessed for dyscalculia, but I do believe I have dyscalculia and that I had dyscalculia throughout school because my capacity to do maths is incredibly poor. I have difficulty still reading the time. I can read the time, but when I read the time, I just don't lo- I don't look at a clock and know what time it is. It takes a short moment for me to figure out the time, but that's every time I look at a clock. So things like adhering to deadlines, planning things out, being on time for appointments, that requires quite a good deal of effort from me. I do it, but it requires a good deal of effort. I would have had difficulty around inhibition. So I would behave in ways that would be inappropriate. The kind of basic skills that you learn to function independently in society, these things for me were difficult. And when you're in school, put all that shit together and on the outside it looks like a very disruptive, misbehaved, bold child. But the other thing with my autism is I frequently experience what's called hyper-focus. So I don't need to tell you this. You listen to this podcast. I've made a fucking career out of it. I'm non-stop all the time thinking about ideas, art, creativity, music, history, whatever the fuck it is. 90% of my day is spent focusing intensely on the thing that interests me most at that moment. If I'm focused on something, I can operate at about 10 times the normal speed that someone else can do. Um, that's my own assessment of, of that. Like, if I enter a state of creative flow in particular, I'm like a laser beam. It's like a fucking race car. I have to literally remove myself from other people because my brain is going so fast. And it feels fucking amazing. I love it. That's the feeling that I live for. It's so much crack. I have an ability to see connections where other people don't see connections. Like, my creativity and my artistic abilities, these aren't because of my autism, but my capacity to focus on them so intensely for so long and shutting everything else out, that's been a massive help to me. And I've built a career out of it. And I love it. But in school that was not a good thing because I might be focused on something that has nothing to fucking do with school. Also, in my social interactions with people throughout my life, I got better at it now as I'm getting older. But I, if, if I'm not properly grounded before a conversation with somebody, I have to be very careful because what will happen is that I will speak only about the thing that I'm interested in at that moment, regardless of what's going on in the rest of the conversation. Now, I watch myself around this. I've learned to do what's known as masking around this. Because if you do that too much, people call you mental. People call you eccentric. People call you mad. And I don't really like that. Like I might bump into... I might bump into someone in the street who I haven't seen in five years. I'll say hello. Before they get a chance to talk, I'm going into a tirade about how 
Kellogg's cornflakes were invented as an anti-masturbation aid in the 1800s. Then I stop talking and I might leave the conversation without saying goodbye. And then the person is left going, Jesus Christ, he's mad. Like as part of my diagnosis, I was asked to speak a bit about family history. Because, I don't know, I, I honestly don't know is autism genetic or is it environmental, I don't know that information. But I was asked about family history. And I had a great grandfather in West Cork. I'm talking about the year 1900 here. From the stories I've heard, he was seen as a lunatic. He used to... He was obsessed with reading. He used to read everything he could get his hands on. He used to love information about the world. But on, at, at the end of his farm, at his gate, it was the only road to the creamery. And he used to stand at the end of his gate every day and stop every single person on the road so he could read out his poetry or so he could tell them facts about the world. But the thing is, is that all of these farmers who needed to go to the creamery They'd go to the creamery with a milk churn on their horse's back and then they'd come back from the creamery with that milk being made into butter. But when they came back, they used to have to avoid the road. They used to have to go along the fields because if they stopped on the road and my great-grandfather stopped them to speak about his poetry or to give them facts about the world, the butter would melt on their horse's backs and all the horses would leave with buttery legs and buttery shoulders, which I think is a beautiful image. But that same great-grandfather, he let his farm go to shit like. He'd be so obsessed with writing his poetry or reading his books that not only was he not bringing his milk to the fucking creamery, he was destroying all the butter in West Cork. When he wasn't liked for that, but all his sons were in the IRA and they helped to get the Brits out of West Cork so that kind of made up for it. And thinking back at that, that sounds like a man who may have been on the autistic spectrum. I mean, that's what I'd be doing if I was in the 1900s and didn't have a fucking podcast. But mindfulness, checking in at my body, self-talk, grounding myself, learning to listen is something I do that requires effort so that I don't go into a big tirade. And I prefer operating that way. It's nicer to exist in society that way. I get to engage empathy that way. So I can pick and choose when I decide to go on a big rant about whatever it is that I'm passionate about at that time. And I have control around it through mindfulness and grounding I've just figured that out over the years but one thing that's a bit of a it can be seen as a negative consequence of all this is I don't really have friends and I've never really had friends and I don't really have much of a social life I've got tons of acquaintances I've got tons of people who maybe once or twice a year I can meet up and have a pint but I don't have close friendships I've got people who are family that I'm close with but I don't really have close friendships and I've never had close friendships and I've never understood close friendships or even really wanted them. Now on the outside that can look lonely but I don't experience it as lonely at all because all I want to do is be alone with my thoughts because that's where my happiness is. Now not all the time, maybe 90% of the time I do require a certain amount of social interaction. Covid lockdown was not good for me the mental health impacts of COVID for me were so detrimental and led to such executive dysfunction. I spoke about this. I had difficulty responding to emails. I wasn't able to tidy up after myself. I was becoming forgetful. I wasn't able to go to bed on time. That's executive dysfunction, which flared up because of COVID lockdown. So being a complete hermit like I had in COVID 
that does not benefit my mental health in one bit. And it was that COVID experience also which drove me towards searching for an autism diagnosis because I kind of just said to myself, fuck me, you've been trying the same mental health techniques now for a long time and nothing's really getting better, it's just you're managing it. So maybe there's something else here. But like I said, the main thing I'm dealing with this week is finding out that I'm autistic is, like I said, it's challenging my sense of self and my my sense of identity, which is quite overwhelming. In particular, it's I'm having to reappraise my past, my experience of school. Like I mentioned last week, the difficult time I had in school, failing my leaving cert, being unable to do maths. And I had a terrible time in school. I did have a bit of crack. I had a lot of crack because I knew how to have fun. But I was very, very heavily excluded in school. Very heavily from the youngest age possible. And this happened at all points of my education. From play school to primary school to secondary school. At all points I was punished heavily by teachers and by the system and by the education system itself and what's making me angry is I'd kind of squared this myself I knew school wasn't for me I knew that I just thought look I'm just really creative I really like art and music and these things and I was so interested in these things that I just wasn't interested in doing schoolwork. And I was also very disruptive and I was bold. So I think of these things and I go, fuck it. Look, you're an adult now, things can change. But looking back at it now and going, holy shit. I was an autistic child who received no support whatsoever. Now I realise that my education was effectively fucking stolen from me. By successive generations of adults who should have flagged something like my first ever ever day of school when I was about four years of age like I'll never forget it because it stuck with me as a traumatic memory but I I was four years of age I don't think I knew I was going to school all of a sudden I just arrived into this fucking classroom and the level of anxiety that I felt at the sheer unpreparedness of it just all of a sudden going from being a child at home and I had my little books and my toys and then all of a sudden now I'm wearing a uniform and I'm in a class of 30 kids the same age as me all four or five years of age and I remember looking around and just wondering how the fuck are all of you okay with just being here what's going on and that's when I had my first ever like extreme I suppose you'd call it a panic attack at four years of age. I just couldn't deal with being in the classroom with all those kids. Now, I wasn't the only kid who was upset because I do remember scanning the room and looking to see who else is crying. And I remember being one little girl was crying and one little boy was crying. And when I saw them, it made me feel okay because I went, right, okay, I'm not the only one. But the difference with me, because I remember it, They stopped crying after about 15 minutes and got with the flow. And I remember the teacher trying to sing songs, trying to do everything. Crayons were out. 
This was like an introductory day. But for me, nothing worked. Nothing worked. And I cried so much it hurt. And then I kept crying and crying and crying until I puked up. I puked all over a young fella beside me by the name of Raymond because I remember it. He's a guard now. And after about an hour, they had to ring home and say, your young fella's still crying. He's puking up everywhere. He's crying. There's nothing we can do to get him calm. Nothing. So my brother came in and my brother, he'd have been about, jeez, he might have been 19, I'd say. And my brother brought with him, because he knew, he brought with him a tape of T-Rex, which when I was four, T-Rex was my favourite band. All I would do all day is listen to that T-Rex tape. Mark Bolin. And T-Rex was my favourite band, because T-Rex was also my favourite dinosaur. And my brother came to the classroom, and the teacher was a nun, and my brother said, here, just, you've a tape player up at the top of the classroom. Take this tape, play it, play that music and I promise you he will stop crying. He'll calm the fuck down. And I remember I felt okay that my brother was there. I knew I felt happy that I was about to hear T-Rex and then the fucking bollocks of a nun wouldn't play it because she said that's adult music. That's not music for children. And she refused to play it and then tried to bring me up and, and get me to listen to fucking some bullshit children's music they were playing which I had no interest in because I was very 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 into music at the age of four like advanced obsession with T-Rex and David Bowie so then I just started bawling crying and puking again until I had to be taken home early and I'll never forget the shame of it the shame of it and then looking around at all the other kids and going there's something with me is different I'm different why couldn't I just sit in that classroom like all the rest of them and I couldn't go back so I missed my first week of school there was no way my parents could send me back not after that reaction not not after this wasn't simple anxiety on the first day of school this was an exceptional overwhelming bodily reaction that resulted in me puking so I missed my first week of school but what was it that made me finally go so my ma took me to there was a pond where we used to look at ducks and my ma took me to this pond where I'd see the ducks and I was under I understood this pond and at the pond she was able to point and say see that building over there that's the school and only when in my mind I could map out the journey of ah okay well I'm familiar with the duck pond And if I can see the school from the duck pond, then the school mustn't be that far away. So now it's less scary. And then I just started going to school. But I'll tell you why I remember that day so vividly. Because four is a young age to be fucking remembering a day as perfectly as that. And the reason I remember that so vividly is... As an adult of 19 or 20, when I first started to get extreme panic attacks and extreme social anxiety and agoraphobia and a fear of socialising, being in public places, which I lived with for about maybe two or three years. When I was getting intense panic attacks as an adult, the theme of my panic attack was what happens if I'm in a public space and when I'm in this public space, I puke and everyone stares at me. 
So I know that my panic attacks came from that first experience because obviously the shame of being in that classroom when I was four years of age and puking on someone and all the other kids staring and going, that one's different. And then me getting the strong feeling of I'm different. I'm not like them. I can't do what you can do. I can't just go to school. I know that that led to my panic attacks when I was older because that was the theme of them. But now, having just received the autism diagnosis, I know that the trigger for that experience was my autism. That extreme social anxiety. That sense of being different. The inability to do what other people instinctually consider to be normal, which is to gather together in a group. For me, the intensity of having to be in such a massively social situation with other four-year-olds triggered intense anxiety that I wasn't prepared for. And somebody should have flagged it as that's quite an exceptional reaction. There were one or two other kids who were anxious too, but this young fella's reaction lasted the entire day. Nothing stopped it. Absolutely nothing. This was something extra. Maybe this young fella needs supports of some description. But that was the early 90s. And those supports probably didn't fucking exist. I think I'll do a little ocarina pause now before I continue. Um, I'm going to play the ocarina, which is a, a clay whistle. And I'm going to do this so that you don't get startled by a sudden advert. So when I play this ocarina, you're going to hear an advert. 
fuck it, I like Blind Boy's podcast. If I met him in real life, I would buy him a pint. Well, you can, and please do, via the Patreon page. And if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. You can listen for free, because the person who can afford it is paying for you to listen for free. So, everybody gets a podcast, and I get to earn a living. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. It's a wonderful model that's based on soundness and kindness. Also, being a patron keeps this podcast fully independent. Um, the podcast space at the moment in general is forevermore getting utterly engulfed by corporate podcasts, celebrity podcasts. There's 90 new podcasts a week. A lot of them are shit. Quality in general is, is really going downhill because they're putting money before creativity. And podcasts that are small and independent, which is what podcasting is about, these podcasts are getting buried and are disappearing and are harder to find. So supporting this podcast keeps it independent. It means that I'm not beholden to advertisers because it's advertisers who fuck podcasts up. Advertise my product. Here's a list of things you can and can't talk about. I didn't like that episode. Change that. That episode was too weird. Make it more normal. Do you think you could do a podcast about Love Island? People really like Love Island. It represents our brand. So I don't have to deal with any of that shit. And I don't want to ever deal with that shit. Um, So please support the podcast to keep it independent. And not just my independent podcast. Any independent small podcast that you enjoy and like listening to. Support that podcast. Monetarily or simply sharing it on your social media and telling people to listen to it. Leaving reviews. All that stuff matters. Also catch me on Twitch on Thursday nights where I'm doing my never ending live video game musical. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast Thursdays at half eight. Now let's get back to the podcast. And if you were expecting a hot take this week. I do apologize because this is quite a self-indulgent podcast. But I really needed to do it. I really need to speak about this shit. So that I can move forward with the hot takes. I need to get this stuff off my chest. But that was a theme throughout school. From as long as I can remember. The sense of not fitting in with other kids. Not having the same interests as other kids. Not feeling like I can speak to other kids. I was actually a bit more comfortable speaking to adults. I wasn't interested in the games that the kids were playing. Literally nothing the other kids liked was what I liked. I had my own very, very specific interests. And my interests were music, which I adored. Um, Dinosaurs was a big thing when I was a kid. But basically encyclopedias. There was a set of world book encyclopedias in my house, which I was very lucky to have. And I taught myself to read from those books. But I would just spend all day going through these encyclopedias, reading and learning about absolutely everything under the sun passionately focused on this and also of course art but these interests definitely set me apart from other kids and made me not want to interact to have friends because I felt like I was on a different level I couldn't like by the time I was about five I became obsessed with Guns and Roses and I couldn't go to anyone on the fucking schoolyard and speak to him about Guns and Roses because they didn't know who the fuck Guns and Roses were but I always explained this to myself as I was born into a house of adults so all my siblings were way way older than me my youngest brother was 13 years older than me everyone was a teenager or young adult when I was born so up until last week I used to say to myself I was a child born into a house of adults of course I'm going to have different interests to other kids 
of course I'm going to be more comfortable speaking with adults than other kids. This is probably what my parents said to themselves too. I know this is what my parents would have said to teachers. Because my, from about the age of five, my parents were consistently being brought down to the school because I was so disruptive. I used to... Carson was a big problem. I used to curse all the time out loud when I was a child. This was not good in a fucking a convent school, effectively. One thing that used to consistently get me in trouble as a child, like all the time, and I mean bad trouble. I didn't understand that you had to speak to adults differently. I would speak to adults as if I was an adult as well. And a lot of adults found this intensely cheeky. Now, when I received my autism diagnosis, my psychologist said to me that an area I have difficulty around is recognising social hierarchies. So I don't see when a person is supposed to be important. Like if I was to walk into a job tomorrow and you said that person's the boss, I will walk up and speak to the boss the same way I would one of my colleagues. I don't understand the rules of this person is important so you have to speak to him differently. Now I quite like that about myself, but that shit will get you into trouble very quickly. One of the most traumatic instances of my fucking childhood and again this fucking autism diagnosis the thing that I'm saying about it threatening my identity it's causing me to go back through all horrible shit that happened to me in my childhood and now I'm reappraising it from a different lens which is overwhelming when I was about six I'm trying to remember this now I was in a playground and I'd become obsessed with learning about the universe. I'd been reading all about the solar system and the universe in my encyclopedias. Obsessing. This is all I was talking about. Didn't give a fuck about anything else. I just wanted to talk about Pluto and Neptune and the sun and the whole shebang. Which is something that should be rewarded. And in fairness, in my house, if I'm at six years of age cracking open an encyclopedia and speaking about the solar system and learning this shit myself... I was lucky enough to have parents and siblings to say that's a good thing, fair play to you. So I felt good about it. And then one day I went up to the playground when I was about six and I was on my own and there was a woman there be about the same age that I am now and she was with her daughter and her daughter was the age that I was then. So two six-year-olds and an adult mother. And I went up to the both of them out of nowhere and I just said to the daughter and to the mother did you know that one day the sun is going to expand and the universe will end and this is definitely going to happen? And I think the daughter started crying because that was scary information. Then the mother started disagreeing with me going, that's not true, stop talking, stop talking, that's not true. And I probably got really pissed off because it is true, I read it in an encyclopedia, the sun is going to expand and the universe is going to end. Now I was six and obviously the fact that I first off I made the daughter cry by speaking about the sun expanding. I'm fucking six. I don't know the difference. I think it's amazing. And then the ma obviously got pissed off that I talked back to her. But she grabbed me by the fucking hair and beat the shit out of me. Like left me unable to talk for about an hour or two afterwards of the sheer shock of an adult like giving me an adult beating like slapping kids isn't good but she didn't slap me she fucking beat me 
I can't remember the fucking woman, unfortunately, because if I did, if I knew who the fuck that woman was, I have an idea of where she lives. If I knew who the fuck that woman was, I would go to her now and say, do you remember when you were my age and you kicked the living fuck out of a six-year-old in front of your daughter? And I only stopped blaming myself for that in my fucking early thirties. When you get to the age that the person was when they did it, you really, really start to see how wildly unacceptable it is. Like, I'm like the same age as that woman now. And the idea that I would even raise my voice to a six-year-old, let alone kick the fuck out of one, it's... I really see how wrong that was now. I really, really see how deeply wrong that was. That's fucking abuse. She should go to jail. That's that's a going to jail thing. Beating the shit out of a six-year-old in a playground in your 30s is a, is a going to jail thing. But I, I had to relive that moment with my psychologist during my autism diagnosis. Because that's a moment for me that I remember that I really shut off. Firstly, it's it's an example of my autism. Because part of the assessment is you have to, you have to look back into your childhood and go... Look, have you felt this way recently or is this your entire life? And instances like that are, you know, being six and reading encyclopedias because you have an obsessive interest about the solar system and then speaking to adults like they're adults and not understanding the social rules of hierarchy or understanding the appropriate way to speak to adults to the point that it was obviously so cheeky I got a beaten. That's the stuff that I would have brought up in my assessment. But that's the moment I began doing what's known as masking. Consciously changing my behaviour, suppressing who I am, to become normal as such. So my energy shifted from having my lovely interests that I adored, my music, my art, all of these things that I adored now became dangerous and I began to hide them. And I hid these things and I tried not to speak about them because when I spoke up about things that I was very enthusiastic about, it got me in trouble. I started to develop the opinion that my obsessions, staying at home, reading encyclopedias, learning about information, learning about the world, all of this shit that I loved, that I was obsessed with, could potentially get me a beating from adults. So I started to shut the fuck up and play dumb. And then I remember another fucking moment soon after that, which was important. It was a teacher. I can't remember her name. What we would we would have been seven or eight. Whatever the fuck was being spoken about in class, I decided I need to go on. I needed to go on a monologue about the the Beatles, and the Beatles music, and the shooting of John Lennon. And I remember the teacher stopping the class because obviously we're not learning about the fucking Beatles when we're eight. She made me go up to the top of class and say what I'd just said about the Beatles, about John Lennon. I remember saying that John Lennon was shot by Mark David Chapman. And after I said it, she said, can everyone give a round of applause for all of that useless information? So the whole class had to clap because I was talking about the Beatles and the adult teacher had framed it not as me being interested in the Beatles, but as me... Eight years of age now, looking for attention. He's looking for attention and he's showing off how much he knows about the Beatles. Everyone clap and shame him. So I just made my mind up to shut the fuck up. And obviously then I was relentlessly bullied in the schoolyard because the adult teacher just told everybody it was okay to bully me. 
Because the other thing too is ch- children don't like the one child who's going on unsolicited monologues about the solar system and the shooting of John Lennon. So they reject you pretty quickly. But one thing, because kids are smart, some of the other kids then, about eight or nine, would have noticed, holy fuck, that fella doesn't give a shit what he says to teachers. He'd walk up to any adult and he would say whatever the fuck comes into his mind. So I used to get kind of manipulated, I suppose you'd say, by other kids who would whisper into my ear and say, walk up to that nun and say this. Walk up to that teacher and say that. Leave the school gates. Go out there outside the school gates and pick up a rock and throw it at that car. And you see, I'd do it because it felt like social acceptance. When the kids would say to me, go and do that mad thing. You're the mad cunt who'll do it. You don't give a shit. Go and do that. I'd do it. Everyone would laugh they're laughing at me of course and I would perceive this as being socially accepted this is the closest I could get to feeling normal if you get me but then of course I'm getting threatened with expulsion at the age of fucking nine earlier so by the time I got into secondary school my record was terrible I was incredibly disruptive I was a lunatic and at 13 in first year in secondary school I got fucked into the worst class in the school. This class was the worst of the worst. Um, people with behavioural issues. People with... Would have had learning difficulties. You would have had kids from incredibly traumatic environments. Um, all of us fucked into this class. Not, not because we were receiving support. They hadn't like identified... Because what 13 is still kids. That's children. So... They hadn't identified a bunch of students and said, these children need fucking help. Even though they're acting out, they need help. They didn't. You just got who they perceived to be the worst possible students and put us into a classroom. And the teachers would walk in and call us gorriers to our faces. And when the other classes were getting career guidance, we didn't get career guidance. We had the vice principal come in and tell us why we should quit school after the junior cert that school isn't the place for us and we shouldn't come back I told the story of that before but in that class basically I went into survival mode because there were some hard cunts in that class and to survive in that class you were either very hard and able to fight and I don't mean just regular teenage boy fighting I mean asserting dominance through the spectacle of violence so the hardest lad in the class was the one who would draw blood smash someone's face off a desk or a wall and I'm not judging those lads because they were 13 and they would have come from quite traumatic environments where there could have been abuse or addiction at home so I wasn't going to gain any approval in any hardness competitions because I wasn't hard at all or no interest in fighting so I learned how to become an absolute fucking mad bastard I gained social approval by being the worst behaved young fella in the school. I would do literally anything. I'd be unbelievably cheeky to teachers, rolling joints at the back of class, abusing solvents at the back of class, not even because I wanted to abuse solvents, but to, to show off to everybody that I was mad enough to abuse solvents at the back of class, pretending I didn't give a fuck about my education, deliberately behaving and acting stupid, gaining the approval of my peers and wearing the mask of normality, by behaving in the normal of that class, which was to be disruptive. 
And then I'd go home and secretly read all my encyclopedias and secretly have my love of music and secretly have my love of art. Being smart and having all these passions and things that I loved doing and having no way to express them in school whatsoever. And at that point, teachers didn't want to help me because they hated me. I was the worst behaved student in the school. I was so poorly behaved in school that kids in other schools knew about me. Which at the time I thought that made me a fucking legend. And it felt good because it felt like social acceptance. Now I'm kind of fucking embarrassed by it. I experienced that embarrassment recently when I was on a podcast about six months ago. There's a band from Limerick called Harmitage Green. And one of the singers, Dan Murphy, has a podcast called The Chat. And Dan is from Limerick. He's around the same age as me. And Dan brought me on the podcast to speak about... To speak about fucking Limerick, to speak about the Rubber Bandits, to speak about my podcast, whatever. And I didn't know Dan when I was a kid because he was in a different school. But he brought up on the podcast that he remembers hearing about me. And this was before the Rubber Bandits or anything like that. He remembers hearing about me in school and saying, did you hear about that mad cunt? Did you hear about him? He's making bombs. And that was the rumour that was going around about me when I was a teenager, that I was up in school making fucking bombs. And when Dan said this to me about six months ago, I got awful kind of fucking embarrassed by it, going, oh, Jesus Christ. And I was thinking back, going, I wasn't making bombs. I never tried to make a bomb. The fuck, where, where the fuck did that come from? And then I remembered, and it made me quite sad. When I was in fifth year, I think it was, I'd started to develop a private obsession with chemistry and biology. Things I should have been studying in school, but I wasn't allowed into those classes. Because my my grades were so fucking shit for the junior cert that I didn't really get to choose my leaving cert subjects. But I developed an intense obsession and desire to learn everything about chemistry and biology. And I was doing this at home, privately, in secret, with my own books, learning about all this shit, and learning a lot about it. And one of the things with my autism... I have difficulty sometimes with conversation. When I'm speaking to a person, sometimes I will steer the conversation towards whatever it is I'm obsessed about at that point. Whatever specific interest that I'm focused on and thinking about all the time, I will steer a conversation in that direction if I'm not grounded. As an adult, I don't anymore. Now I ground myself and I listen instead rather than going on a monologue. But when I was a teenager... Obviously, during this period in fifth year, all I wanted to talk about, if anyone asked, was fucking chemistry and biology. That was it. But I was hanging around with the ball boys. And all we would do, really, is just smoke joints and act the bollocks. So any speak of fucking chemistry or biology, was that was nerd talk. You didn't do that. That was social exclusion. So I remembered back, I used to learn how to grow hash and how to make explosives specifically from a book called The Anarchist Cookbook so what I was doing is within my peer group I would be allowed to go on big long monologues about bomb making and growing cannabis and the lads would listen because this is bullshit hold on listen now he's talking about making bombs be quiet he's talking about cannabis what a mad bastard he's gonna grow up to be a big drug dealer he is Listen then, be quiet. And I'd just be going on big tirades about chemistry and fucking botany and plant biology, because that's what I was interested in. 
but I framed it as bombs and cannabis. Now I wasn't making bombs. I didn't give a fuck about making bombs. I wasn't growing hash either. But when Dan said that to me recently, that he remembered. Fuck it, I remember lads saying that you were making bombs in school. Years ago. It made me fucking sad because... I had the brain to be doing chemistry. I had the brain to be doing biology. To be passionate about these things. To be excelling academically. But because, that I now realise, issues related to my undiagnosed autism, all that confusion and lack of understanding of myself and being chastised from teachers and being told that I was bald, being told that I was disruptive, wrong, being told that I was stupid. I even have to check myself with the language I'm using now. I said the word tirade there about six times in this podcast to refer to when I go on a monologue. And a tirade, a tirade is like a big, angry, aggressive speech. I'm using the word tirade because that's what obviously was used against me when I was growing up. Teachers saying, shut up with your tirade. I don't go on tirades. I go into monologues speaking about something I care about deeply because I love it. That's not a tirade. All of that robbed me of a fucking education. And I had squared that with myself. Over the years I'd said to myself, look, you were really bold in school. Forgive yourself and move on. Now it's different. I was autistic and I was acting up. And that doesn't feel very fair. And I am happy now being an artist. Like I love what I do now. But I do believe if I'd have had the access to something like studying science, something to do with science in college. I could have brought my creativity and my capacity to think laterally to that and done something completely differently with my life. Now, maybe I would have hated it and ended up back at art, but the point is, the opportunity was taken from me. That's what I don't like and that's what I'm having to reappraise right now. So that was my experience in school, which I now realise was the experience of an autistic person and that feels kind of unfair. I have to open up an an ugly chapter again and look at it from a different lens, which is tough going. And I had a lot of sensory issues in school, like I wouldn't wear my uniform. And the reason I wouldn't wear my uniform was because of how it felt on my body. It would feel itchy. Now I'm sure other people's uniforms felt itchy as well, but when my uniform felt itchy, I couldn't think about anything else, so I stopped wearing it. I'd wear tracksuits, I'd wear things that were comfortable. If I told the teachers it feels uncomfortable, they'd just say fuck off and go home and don't come back until you've got your uniform back on. Oversensitivity to fabrics is part of my autism. So that experience there, being in school, that's not very pleasant. That's not a very pleasant school experience. I did have tons of crack. I had loads of crack with all the messing and making people laugh. That was enjoyable. But it also would have been quite nice to have been given the opportunity to be as academic as I know I could have been and then had more options for careers but even then with that school experience the problem wasn't necessarily me the problem was that the entire school system is designed for neurotypical people which is the majority of the population it's not designed for people who have different needs I'm assuming things are better now I'll be honest I don't know I found out I was autistic this weekend there's a lot of learning I have to do If a doctor came to me tomorrow and said, here's a pill, if you take this pill, you won't be autistic anymore, would I take it? No, absolutely not. I love my brain. I love the thing. I love my personality. I love the way that I think about things. 
I love the fact that I'm rarely bored. So long as I have the tools to keep my mental health in check, which means that I'm not drifting towards anxiety, depression, social anxiety isn't coming back, then I love life and I wouldn't change a thing about me. And the specific diagnosis I was given is autism spectrum disorder. It would have been called Asperger's about 10 years ago. I would have been diagnosed with Asperger's, but that's not a a diagnosis anymore. So now it's called autism spectrum disorder. And I don't even like the fact that it's called disorder because I don't feel, I, I really don't feel it as a disorder. I feel it as when the environment doesn't suit me, then it becomes a fucking disorder. But the problem isn't with me. Now, that's where I want to be very clear that I'm speaking about my experience. Because there could be other autistic people and they do experience it as a disorder and they have much different difficulties or much harder experience at living than I do. So I'm not speaking for anyone else, but I'm just saying for me, I don't experience it as a disorder. When I got out of school and I had to experience the the intense shame of failing my leaving cert and I was thrust into adulthood and I was expected to all of a sudden be able to function as an adult confronted with the fear of you're no longer in the routine of school now you must get a job now you must pay bills you must pay taxes then it was a fucking disorder because I got extreme social anxiety to the point that it developed into agoraphobia and I couldn't function at all and I was utterly helpless but thankfully I went to a psychotherapist when I was 19 or 20 and it came free because I was in art college And this therapist, therapist didn't know I was autistic, didn't flag that I was autistic. The therapist was just, oh, you're someone with pretty bad anxiety. Let's work on that with some CBT. And I did, and it helped. And step by step, my self-esteem improved. Things that I was terrified of, such as preparing my own food, making dinner for myself, dressing myself, going to a pub, being comfortable in situations where there's a large group of people. I did it gradually using CBT and each time I did it I would prove to myself that I was capable of doing it and I became a healthy functioning person and then I loved that so much that I decided I fucking adore psychology now I think I want to train to be a psychotherapist so I did when I was a mature student and I became obsessed with psychology and I became obsessed with CBT and transaction analysis and mindfulness and attachment theory and every single possible psychological theory to do with the human mind that I could find and I lapped it up and I adored it and what this did is it allowed my neurodivergent brain to almost read the manual of what people are I could read about why people get anxiety, why are some people angry how things from people's childhood can influence their personality and how they are as an adult. I could read about what is the anger of emotion, what is the anger of fear, what is the anger of envy. And I had it all down now on paper to pore over and understand and obsess. And that gave me the tools and confidence to not be afraid, to not feel helpless. If I'd become fearful about what clothes should I wear when I'm going out? What if I go to the hairdresser's? And the hairdresser only wants to talk about soccer, but I don't know anything about soccer. And then I'm forced to talk to him about soccer. What if that happens? And I would use mindfulness and CBT around these things and I'd say, well, what's the worst that can happen? You might have to sit for half an hour and listen to somebody speak to you about soccer. 
and you're going to have to pretend you're interested. And you know what? It's not going to be pleasant, but it'll be grand. What if I go to a party and someone starts speaking to me and then I get nervous about my eye contact or I want to start spinning on the spot when they're talking or I want to go on a monologue. And I just say to myself, if you want to do it, do it. But sometimes when you do it, that can result in social rejection. So I learned how to listen to people. I learned how to read people's emotions. I learned through mindfulness meditation and emotional intelligence how to correctly label my own emotions. How to know when what I'm feeling is anger or what I'm feeling is sadness or what I'm feeling is fear. How to understand, know and sit with these feelings. And by understanding those in myself, that made me better at empathy with other people. And then social interaction. Because social interaction now, it's not my comfort zone. But I can do it. I don't avoid it. I just don't do loads of it. And that's grand. And something my psychologist said to me when I was getting my assessment was that I've been living with autism my whole life. But when I started to go on my mental health journey in my early 20s, I had kind of figured out in my own way the right type of self-therapy that genuinely helped my individual experience of autism. And for me, that was cognitive behavioural therapy, which works wonderfully for me because it's so logical. Transaction analysis, because that explores in detail the nuances of human conversation. Emotional intelligence, because that helps me to label my emotions and the emotions of other people. And then mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, so that I can calmly bring all of these things into my present awareness and apply them in difficult situations. And then on top of all that, exercise. Exercise is fucking essential to me. Going to the gym, running regularly. These things are very, very important to get me to live inside and feel my body and be present. And my goal with how I navigate my autistic experience is what I'm trying to avoid is executive dysfunction. I didn't know that that's what I was doing all along. I've spoken about it on this podcast three, four years ago, but I wasn't calling it executive dysfunction. When my mental health is, it, it, when my mental health is bad... I start to experience a feeling of helplessness. And when I start to feel helpless and incapable, then I start to not answer emails. And then problems start to build up because I'm not answering emails. And then I forget to pay a bill. And basically what happens is the regular functional things that I need to exist in society, answering emails, doing my job, paying my bills, going to bed on time, once these things spiral and roll into a ball that's when I experience the executive dysfunction and I feel helpless and I'm not very good at helping myself. This happened over COVID in 2021 on COVID lockdown. I got into a, a, a pretty bad state of helplessness. It started because I let my studio get so untidy that I couldn't walk around in there. So that's when I got my office. Now I have my new office. I'm not, my senses aren't overloaded when I'm in there. It's a lovely clean space. I go there every day with a sense of routine. That office is where I go to work and work only. And as soon as I did that, I'm able to answer emails again. I'm able to plan. I'm able to feel a sense of ambition. I wake up feeling positive. I enjoy being alive. 
just by changing my environment. I now know that that's autistic behaviour, and that's quite helpful, because I've been experiencing executive dysfunction throughout my life. And a year ago, or two years ago, if I'd got myself into a situation where my studio is so untidy I can't walk around, I'm not answering emails, I'm not texting back, I'm not taking responsibility for my life. If I did that a year or two ago, I would have just called myself a lazy, useless cunt over and over in my head. You useless, lazy, stupid bollocks. Every hurtful, harmful thing that was said to me, that was said to hold me back when I was a little child in school, would now return to my head as an adult within my internal dialogue to myself. And sure, what's that doing only completely spiralling the situation more and more until I'm helpless? So now I'm not doing that anymore because I'm not a, a lazy, stupid, stupid bollocks. I'm autistic and this is an area where I have difficulty. I mean, I'm also asthmatic. When I'm doing my 10 kilometre run, the odd time at around 8 kilometres, I might get a little bit out of breath and I reach into my pocket and I take my inhaler. I don't call myself a weak a weak bastard with shitty lungs when I do that I just go ah yeah I'm asthmatic my lungs struggle a little bit more than people who aren't asthmatic I don't shame myself so I won't be shaming myself or chastising myself for behaviours which are as a result of autism and I'm going to start seeing a therapist again because I haven't seen a therapist in a long time but I'm going to start seeing a therapist who specialises in people who are neurodiverse so that I can update my mental health toolbox effectively. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to start being a little bit more proud of the things I've achieved in my fucking career. I've made a lot of TV shows. I've written fucking best-selling books. I had a successful music career. I've done a bunch of shit in all different disciplines. And I've done this while being artistic. And I'm proud of myself for doing that because... The messaging and signals I got all the way through school is that I wouldn't be anything, that I, I was defective and stupid and useless. And the message I got from my peers through bullying was that I was weird, eccentric and mad. And one thing I'm definitely going to be doing is, like I adore writing, I love writing so much. The, my favourite part of my career is writing books. I love my two collections of short stories that I have, I really adored writing them. And I'm proud of them as pieces of work. And sometimes I get very upset when they get unfairly reviewed. Now, I don't mean if someone says they don't like it or someone says, oh, I thought these were bad books. I don't enjoy them. They're not well written. That's fine. That's critique. But there's some reviews who just say, oh, his work is, is weird. He's trying too hard to be surreal, to be weird. He's trying too hard to be strange. What does this book say about the human condition? And that's very frustrating and it feels unfair because and this is something I knew in my heart but now I have language for it. I don't write from a neurotypical perspective. I write from the perspective of neurodiversity. That's why my books appear mad because I'm exploring and playing with the rules of rationality in society that I struggle with. The rules of what is acceptable, what is normal behaviour, what is appropriate, what is mad and what is not mad. 
these are all things I navigate and think about and have had to think about my whole life. So when I write a book and it's fucking bonkers and it's surreal, that's me having fun with that struggle. That's me enjoying playing with and experimenting with the rules of the neurotypical world as a means of personal catharsis. And that's why I love doing it so much and that's why it feels so amazing and so therapeutic when I write. And I end up reading these reviews and then beating myself up and thinking I'm doing something wrong with my writing. And then I go off reading a load of fucking Sally Rooney. Now I enjoy Sally Rooney's work but as I've said with Sally Rooney's work before while I enjoy reading Sally Rooney Sally Rooney doesn't make me want to write or not even Sally Rooney. Whatever literature at the moment is getting good reviews I'll go off and I'll read it and a lot of it to me just seems incredibly what we call neurotypical I'm reading these books and it's about human relationships and it's about human conversation and I'm right back at where I was in school trying to understand those rules and I'm never going to write like that and when I try to write like that when I try to write a story which feels neurotypical we'll say It feels terrible. It feels like trying to have a conversation with my barber about Aston Villa. So instead, I read writers that feel neurodiverse. And I don't know if they are neurodiverse, but I read writers that... The worlds that they create feel like how I experience the world. James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, a writer called Ted Chiang, Patricia Lockwood... Flann O'Brien George Louis Borges Mariana Enriquez These writers I can speak their language When I read their work I can translate it I understand it It relates to my experience of the world So I want to write like that I don't want to write Very solemn stories About human relationships I want to write about Someone who gets addicted to wearing tweed And then the tweed fabric that they wear is so itchy and abrasive that when they walk, they accidentally rip the fabric a time and they turn into a half an hour. That's what I want to write. And that's what I did write. That's a story in my last book. And I now realise that does say something about the human condition. It says something about my fucking human condition. I'm undiagnosed autistic writing that. You know, and I remember in my time in school with the fucking itchy school jumper and the school jumper being so fucking itchy that I was being sent home and then I can't read the clock and I can't read the numbers on the clock and then I'm writing stories about someone who's addicted to wearing an itchy jumper and the itchiness of that rips the fabric of time and they turn into a half an hour. I love the madness of that. I thoroughly enjoy writing like that. I'm processing trauma when I write like that and I know from a neurotypical perspective it sounds utterly fucking mad and it is utterly mad but it's me having fun with that madness or even a rubber bandit song from 10 years ago called Spastic Hawk which is a song again I love and is close to my heart because when I made it I felt that deep catharsis I felt that when when I was when I was writing that song pain was leaving my body via creativity which is one of the most wonderful feelings in the world and I knew Spastic Hawk was about me being bullied and being called a spastic when I was 
a child because in Limerick the word spastic was used to police normality. If you were odd or weird or strange you were called a spastic. So spastic hawk is about that but now looking back at spastic hawk yes it's about me being bullied but it's about me being bullied for being autistic and it's clear as day now and I love that my unconscious mind had mind had, had answers that my conscious mind wasn't aware of. I suppose I'm talking about that because one of the most heartbreaking things of the past year when I got the issue with the executive functioning is I got writer's block. I couldn't write. I'm, I'm writing a new book at the moment. I spent a year not writing, lads. And when I can't write, that breaks my fucking heart. I'm very, very upset when I can't sit down at a page and go into my mind and explore and create. That creates mental health difficulties for me. So, one of the reasons I got writer's block is I took a lot of bad reviews on board and that's not the fault of the reviewer I'm not blaming the reviewer but when my books got reviewed badly because they were so personal to me it brought me back to being criticised in school it brought me back to that playground getting beaten up by that woman and that's not on the reviewer that's my shit I have to take responsibility of that but getting diagnosed with autism has, has helped me process through that and has made me feel very excited about my next book if you get me I'm going to be writing my next book from an un- unapologetically neurodiverse uh, position and then the final thing I do want to talk about is my plastic bag um, I wear a plastic bag on my head and I have worn a plastic bag on my head for the entirety of my career now at first with the rubber bandits it was you know, kind of trying to stay anonymous, even though I'm not anonymous. Hiding our identities. It was a character thing. It was funny to have a plastic bag on my head. But then, as I got more serious in my career and I started speaking about mental health, writing and doing this podcast and not doing the rubber bandits anymore, I was still wearing the plastic bag. And I used to say to people, I wear this plastic bag because I've got social anxiety. An unfortunate consequence of my job is... If you write books, or you go on TV, or you make podcasts, that also gets you a certain degree of notoriety and quite a lot of attention. And it's attention that I definitely don't want. I don't care about being famous. What I care about is having the opportunity to create and make work that I love and put it out. That's what I care about. I don't like the bit where you're well known. So I wear the plastic bag to protect myself from that. Now I realise, and my psychologist agrees, that's 100% autistic. It's, It's literal autistic masking. I wouldn't be able to do this job if it meant the amount of small talk that I'd have to engage in on a daily basis. Like, I'm not that well known. I'm not that fucking famous. I'd be... Most households in Ireland would have an idea of, oh, that fella with the plastic bag on his head. But I've, I've enough notoriety that... I couldn't go to Dunn's or go to Aldi without at least one person stopping me and having a conversation. And that to me is not pleasant because of my autism. If you said to me, you have to go to Dunn's and you have to get your dinner and you have to prepare yourself for that and you have to plan what you're going to get and you're going to be mindful when you go to Dunn's. But however, possibly four people, four strangers might stop you and try to have a conversation with you. I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd have to quit the job. That would be too stressful for me. 
so my plastic bag protects me from that. I get to be blind by and do my podcast and go on stage and write my books and do all this shit. And then when I, when I don't want to be blind by, I'm not. I'm just fucking nobody. I'm just a boring man buying his carrots, living a very, very quiet life that's as boring as humanly possible. And all I want to do is run, go to the gym, make my dinner and work, and that's it. And stay in contact with close family members and then meet my friends twice a year for pints, and that's it. And that life keeps my keeps the mental health issues that could arise as a result of my autism in check and the plastic bag ensures that it protects it it's a it's an armor it's a weapon because i tell you what lads that fucking plastic bag that does not help my career in any way it might have done 15 fucking years ago with the rubber bandits when you're trying to get attention but now i'm in my 30s i'm not really even doing comedy anymore i'm doing podcasts about serious things trying to write serious literature this does not help my career every single fucking TV there's documentaries I've, I've lost so many fucking jobs because of this plastic bag I've had TV opportunities land on my fucking lap and going we'd love for you to present this how would you like to do a documentary series on this and then they go we just can't have some cunt with a plastic bag presenting this is a really serious documentary you can't be doing this with a plastic bag in your head and they don't understand when I won't take it off. They just can't get their heads around it. Even to the point where they suggest, would you wear a more formal mask instead? And now I've got a better answer for them. I'm fucking autistic. And this is a unique neurodiverse solution that I've come up with that allows me to be both famous and not famous at the same time. And it's environmentally friendly because I'm getting single-use plastic bags and repurposing them into masks to help my autistic self navigate a hostile environment. I'm going to wrap, I think I'll wrap it up now. That was the rambliest podcast I've ever done. I don't think I've anything done anything as rambly as that, but I really did need to do it and I needed to speak about that stuff to process it for myself and also to share it with any of you who might be neurodiverse or autistic or whatever. But one thing I will say is for the second part of my life, for my adult life, since about 23 onwards, since I started to develop my, my mental health tools, I've been genuinely thriving as an autistic person, achieving goals, being happy, really enjoying my life. The slight limitations such as not being hugely social, I mean, that doesn't matter when it's not something I really want. All I can do is measure my life in terms of how happy I feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And for 90% of the past decade or whatever, I've been fucking very happy. Very, very happy. About a 7 out of 10. And any times I was unhappy, there was a reason for it. Such as lockdown. It's okay to be unhappy about lockdown, that was shit. But I also want to point out the reason I was happy. And the reason I was thriving. With my autism is because I, I, without knowing it, had managed to create an environment that suits me. I'm self-employed. I have a job. And this job that I have, and this is the most beautiful thing in my life, this job that I have right now, my job is, is to pursue the things that I'm passionate about and interested about. Whatever my obsession is on a weekly basis, that's my fucking hot take. The way that I earn a living is also the way I want to operate. 
the way that keeps me mentally healthy and happy. And if I hadn't put the work in to get that, and if I hadn't had a few instances of luck in order to get that, and I was someone instead, the same person who was now stuck in a job that didn't suit me, in a job whereby where it'd be like fucking school, where I have to focus every day on fitting in, where I have to try and understand the politics of an office, where I met every day with consistent barriers to my autism, then I'd be a very different person and I mightn't even be here. The autism there isn't the issue. It would be the environment that doesn't suit the autism that's the issue. And the driving force for me, like I said, I'm not driven by success. I'm driven by never, ever, ever being in a situation where I have to work in a job that I might genuinely suffer in. Lots of people can have jobs that they don't like, that aren't pleasant, but they have a capacity to cope with it and switch off and go home and enjoy what it is they enjoy. With my autism, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I'm thankful for that every single fucking day. Very thankful. And I want to highlight it because if you're not autistic and you're coming away from this podcast going, Blind Boy said he had autism and he's getting on grand. Like, that's me. That's my experience. That's a number of situations coupled with luck and my unique experience of autism. I happen to be doing well. But that's not the same for other people, other adults who have autism who are not. So please don't come away listening to my experience thinking, oh, that's grand. And like I said, because I've only just learned this, I don't have a fucking clue what I'm talking about, really. I know how to speak about my experience and my experience only, and that's it. All right, dog bless. Thank you very much for listening to that. That was almost 90 minutes. Um, I'm going to be back next week with a hot take, and we'll be back to normal. Also, it's, I think it's Autism Awareness Month. So it's pretty nice to find this out on Autism Awareness Month. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 